Using an overpriced trash bag. Pricey, pricey, pricey. A bag that breaks. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Or a smelly bag. Stinky, stinky, stinky. You gotta snag Hefty's Ultra Strong Trash Bag. Always at an ultra low price. Hefty, hefty, hefty. It has Arm & Hammer odor control, so your nose and your wallet will be... Happy, happy, happy. Hefty Ultra Strong Trash Bags. Hefty Strong, all day long. Hefty, hefty, hefty. Introducing the SND Podcast channel, your one-stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard podcast episode 13. I'm Nick Sarasso. And I'm Jose Rivera, the Talking Beard. And Jose, we're getting further along the season for the NFL. We're heading into week 11. We'll talk about that a little bit later in our podcast, but I want to begin with the MLB, and especially with the fact that we're recording our podcast on Thursday early, November 16th, so the MVP will be decided later today, but we're going to talk a little bit about it to begin with, and want to start with the finalists on both ballots for the AL, Aaron Judge, Jose Altuve, and Jose Ramirez, and in the National League, you have Paul Goldsmith, Giancarlo Stanton, and Joey Votto, and one of the things that stand out to me to begin with when it comes to the American League is for the first time in Mike Trout's sits full MLB seasons, he will not finish first or second in the AL MVP voting. And that already is an incredible sentence on Mike Trout. But getting to the finalists, this is one of those tighter races than you really thought it would have been. I mean, yeah, I mean, it really is going to come down to Aaron Judge and Jose Altuve, you know. Um, guys like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stan, who we'll get to in a little bit, have really revived the home run ball. And all of a sudden, everybody loves the home run ball again. It seems like for the past couple of years, we've gotten away from what do home runs really mean on the big field. But those two guys have made it exciting again. And when you look at the numbers, yeah, I mean, I think Jose Altuve still is the clear-cut favorite. I think a lot of people still feel that way. But Aaron Judge is still going to get some first-place votes when you look at what he did. You know, this is a season where... You know, depending on how you depict most valuable player, Aaron Judge really was valuable to the Yankees. You know, 50-something home runs. Um, you know, the Yankees weren't supposed to be in the playoffs this year. Uh, but not only do they get past the wild card game, but they make almost a deep run, literally one game away from going to the World Series. So when you look at MVPs and the impact that they've had on this team, there's no denying that Aaron Judge has had an impact on the Yankees. But the question is, um, well, two things I'm looking at is, one, who's made a bigger impact? Him or Jose Altuve for the Astros, and two, does the Yankee bias still exist? Will Aaron Judge re- receive any first-place votes? Because we all know back in the day, no Yankee players won an MVP award. Robinson Cano was snubbed for Josh Hamilton a couple years back. There was one year that jo- uh, Mark Teixeira or Derek Jeter could have won, and Joe Maurer took it instead. So really, if you play for the Yankees, you've really been you're kind of casted off early because you play for the Yankees in the past. I wonder, you know, there's a lot of new younger voters now these days. We're seeing that with the steroid era members. You're seeing those guys start to get higher votes on the ballots because it's new writers. I wonder if the new writers are going to get rid of that Yankee bias and really give Judge the credit he deserves in this kind of race. 
the one thing that's going to be challenging when it comes to Aaron Judge is there was almost like a two-month hiatus where he took off, and he just completely slumped, and basically did nothing in that time span. And I think Jose Altuve really caught on fire at that point, showed that he's a consistent hitter, as we all know he is, compared to Aaron Judge, who's only playing in his first full bid-lead season, and unanimous rookie of the year, of course, but I think that's really going to be the standout, and it's going to be a voter's decision on this is a player that practically did nothing for two months in the regular season, and it's great that he still hit 52 home runs. It's great that he led the American League in runs stored and 114 RBIs, and he killed the baseball and was one of the most dominant figures in the entire MLB for the entire season, but we're still talking about a guy who just couldn't hit for a little while. Yeah, and you know, if I had a vote, I would be voting for Jose Altuve. Again, Judge did have an impact, but there was also he also broke the record for most strikeouts in consecutive games. And I understand Aaron Judge is going to strike out 200 times. I'm not going to hold that against an MVP candidate saying, oh, if they strike out 200 times, they're not an MVP, because that's not true. But MVPs don't strike out every single day in every single game. And to me, it's like you said, consistency versus hot for four out of the six months. Jose Altuve has been consistent all month, all season long, every single month. I think at one point he was hitting, what, like 500, 700 for his batting average in one of the months that he was in. But Jose Altuve, his batting average is way too high. The contributions he did is way too much more than Judge. And again, that consecutive game um, strikeout streak really weighs heavy in my mind, too, for Judge as well. Yeah, Altuve, 60 points higher in batting average between the two. Of course, Judge is going to beat Altuve in home runs. He's going to beat Altuve in RBIs and even beats him in runs stored. But when you talked about it, I always look at what's the differential between those home runs and does it weigh into those RBI considerations. And you're talking about a 28 difference in home runs compared to just a 33 difference in RBIs. So, I mean, it's just that. So, like, the RBI standpoint, in my mind, should be further in the conversation. He hit 52 home runs, 114 RBIs. That, that's not what you'd expect when you're talking about a player that nearly drove himself in half his RBIs compared to a guy like Jim Carlos Stanton, 59 to 137. Okay, that's a little bit more of a difference between those seven. So, I, I, I do think the voters are going to have an interesting conversation on what it could be, and I, I do think they will go the Jose Altuve route because this is a player that for an entire regular season stayed consistent compared to a player that just played maybe four months in that, trial, that time span. And if you were to tell me if Judge was injured for that entire month where he slumped or the entire month plus to two months where he was slumping and he didn't play, he probably would MVP just on those numbers then. Because you're missing out on that entire batting average where he got destroyed in those numbers, where he destroyed himself in on-base percentage at times. He still walked a ton this year, and I think that's credit to himself. But like you said, we're talking to a player that just struck out an immense amount of times at the end of the day, that struggled for a two-month time span. And that's really what I think people will have that sort of taste in their mouth, 
even when he's hitting 52 home runs throughout an entire regular season. I can't see the voters saying no to a guy that hit 340 sits in the regular season and put up phenomenal numbers, including a 2020, throughout the year. For the National League, I mean, this was a lot closer. Paul Goldsmith, Giancarlo Stanton, Joey Votto, and you could make the case about another five, six players that could have been in the National League MVP. But when it comes to three players, is there someone in your mind that got snubbed that should have been one of the finalists? Yeah, definitely. I think it's the RBI leader in the National League, Nolan Arenado. I mean, we have the home run leader in there. Um, I believe Goldschmidt led the league in hitting, maybe. Um, You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, But, you know, you're missing out on the RBI leader. And this is a guy that, you know, didn't just drive in himself kind of like with Aaron Judge's numbers. I mean, Arenado had astronomical RBI numbers uh, this year. I understand he hits in core field, but that doesn't really factor into my mind when it comes to RBIs. I'm really puzzled as to why um, Arenado is not on the ballot. When I look at MVPs, when I look at the most valuable players, I'm thinking you should definitely have at least maybe the home run leader in there if he was valuable. But you should definitely have an RBI leader in there because, again, RBIs, you know, those are the runs that are scoring. Those are the runs that are determining the factor of the game. So, if you're not putting the guy who drove into most of those, who led the Colorado Rockies and really helped them make the playoffs this year, then I don't know what we're trying to depict here. Yes, there was a lot of candidates in the National League. I understand that. But to me, Joey Votto is the weak link on that ballot. I clearly stand for Stanton on that ballot. I'm okay with Paul Goldschmidt on that ballot. And don't get me wrong, Joey Votto did have an MVP-type year, but he also plays for the Cincinnati Reds. And I, I understand the whole thing about you can't judge it based on wins and losses, but I can't look at the Cincinnati Reds and say, okay, a fourth-place team. Joey Votto was so entirely valuable that he led his team to fourth place, while the RBI leader, Nolan Arenado, or even a guy like Charlie Blackman, led his team to a playoff spot. I can't ignore those facts. Yeah, I'm, to me, it's like you just said, Charlie Blackman. 137 runs scored, led the entire MLB in that 37 home runs. We're talking about a guy that's mainly in the top of the order Oftentimes, he's a leadoff hitter for the team. 37 home runs. It's still, uh, yes, Stanton hit 59, but when you take Stanton's numbers away for a moment, it's even still top four tied with in the National League in home runs at 37. And we're still talking about a guy that had 104 RBIs. It's not as much as Gintal Stanton at 132 or Arenado at 130, but it's still 100 plus at the end of the day. And a 331 batting average, which leads the National League, I get it. It's Coors Field, and that might have been a part of the reason why we see Blackman and Arenado both get snubbed. But I do agree with you. Joey Votto, his numbers are great on average, on base percentage, slugging percentage. There's nobody really better than him in the National League when it comes to those type of numbers. But Blackman still beat him out on average. And he still had just as be- more RBIs, more home runs, more runs stored, more stolen bases, beat him in average. And, and Joey Votto's a finalist in my mind and not Charlie Blackman. And I think Blackman is one of those type of players that had he been on the ballot, I think you could make more of a case for Blackman than on Gintalo Stanton almost. So I think that's one of those situations where I think we might have snubbed out the actual MVP this season on just how well Blackman played. And the guy also had 213 hits, is Charlie Blackman. 
compared to a lot of the other guys we're talking about, like Giancarlo Stanton at 168, or even Joey Votto at 179 hits. So a huge difference between those type of players. And I, I think that's something that really stands out on a decision-making, and I don't understand how Charlie Blackman got completely snubbed in the NL MVP. Jose, who do you have winning the MVP today? Well, as we said, for the American League, I have Jose Altuve winning for the MVP. Um, we kind of broke that down. I think Judge does deserve some first-place votes. But again, we, we explained that whole two-month hiatus sort of thing. Um, to me, that's just too inconsistent um, to label him as MVP. He's definitely the MVP of the Yankees, but as in terms of MVP of the league, I think it has to be Jose Altuve. For International League, again, I mean, my picks were any of those two guys on the Rockies, so if I have to decide between these three, um, it does become a little bit tougher because their numbers are so similar, and I feel like the contributions to the team are similar too. I usually like to roll with a guy that his team made the playoffs, so usually I would lean towards Goldschmidt, but for the NL MVP, I'm actually going to pick Giancarlo Stanton. I mean, 59 home runs. The most we've seen in a while, you know, since the whole steroid era and, and pitching has become dominant again. And again, really, you know, the home run ball is back basically in baseball. Um, you know, more home runs were hit this year than any other year in baseball. And, you know, a lot of people are starting to care again. A lot of people are starting to realize the kind of the importance of home runs again in general, because, you know, Giancarlo Stanton made that made that known and so did Aaron Judge. But when you look at Stanton's numbers, you know, 59 home runs. You know, plenty of RBIs to show for it. I truly think he was very valuable to the city of Miami. He was very valuable to that team because without him, I don't know where the Miami Marlins would have been this year in terms of the standings, in terms of how they played. And I truly believe if they would have had just one more decent player, um, you know, Marcelo Suna had another good year this year too. But if somebody else would have shown up on that team or if they would have had another player, I think you're looking at the Marlins as a wild card team because of Stan's contributions. But one man can't do it by himself. That's why Mike Trout can't take the Angels to the promised land by himself. That's why we're always talking about, is Mike Trout really valuable to the Angels because they're always coming in last place or whatnot? You know, it's, it's because of that reason. Nobody can do it by themselves. Stanton has no help in Miami, um, but his numbers are astronomical, and they're MVP-like if he would have had a little bit of help. So I, I'm picking Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah, I have Stanton as well. When you just look at the, especially, I think, if Charlie Blackman was in it, you make more of a case to go Blackman than Stanton. But when Goldsmith and Vado are in it, and those guys are, as we talked about, home run guys, RBI guys, Stanton beats both Goldsmith and Joey Vado. He beats them in run scored. And the average department, that's the only consideration there. But a 40-point difference in average between Stanton and Vado, but where Stanton clearly outbeats Vado in every stat by at least 20 when we're talking about that. I think there's just too much to consider. Again, Joey Votto, if the voters are considering average slugging percentage on base percentage as their go-to stats, Joey Votto will beat out Giancarlo Stanton. But if they're not taking that as the pure consideration of it all, I think at the end of the day, you have to Joe Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, but it does leave me one more question to ask you, and that's J.D. Martinez. And I know we talked about just a few players that got snubbed. You said Arenado. I said Charlie Blackman. But J.D. on a totally different side played part of the year for the Detroit Tigers, played part of the year for the Arizona Diamondbacks. In total, it's 45 home runs in just 432 at-bats. So he's hitting one home run nearly every 10 at-bats at this point. 
less than that, still hits 104 RBIs, and he bats 303 for the season. And he's not on any ballot, partly because of the fact that he played half the year in two different leads. So I, I know it's a rare moment, but does MLB need to make a consideration on type of players that happen to be like a J.D. Martinez in this style? Um, you know, it's weird and it's unfair, um, but I'm actually okay with it because I don't know where do you place the guy. Do you place it for his contributions in Detroit or do you place it for his contributions in Arizona? Because honestly, and again, you can't assume that he would have done this all year long within the same league. Um, you know, and it's not fair to guys like Stanton, guys like Votto, guys like Goldschmidt who have been tearing it up or Blackman either or Arenado who've been tearing it up all year long within the same league. Then this guy comes in for half a season uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks and tears it up for for Arizona and wins the NL MVP. Now I understand that he did it, that he did the same you know basically the same numbers while he was in Detroit. Um, but how do you judge that? Do you put him on the AL ballot? Do you put him on the NL ballot? Again, you can't assume that he would have produced the same uh, within the same league. Um, so although it's awkward, yes, it's unfair. But there's really not much you can do. And I truly believe that with this issue, the MLB has their hands tied. Yeah, it's tough for me to say. I mean, it almost goes back for me. We can talk about like Manny Ramirez when he got traded to the Dodgers and players like that. But Yohannes Anaspidis is a good standout because he won an AL Gold Glove when he, the year he got traded to the Mets. And they yeah, that was a little cons- weird. They only considered it to the point where he was playing with the Tigers. And then at that point, that was how far it went, and he still won a gold glove at that point. But we're still talking about a player that, I mean, J.D. Martinez is a free agent this year, and you expect him to get paid a bundle, especially by the numbers he put up in his contract season. But I'd love to see the MLB say, you know, even though you spent half the year in Detroit, your num- you're still now in the National League and all your numbers should count instead of just that time you spent with Arizona. And I'd love to see that happen in baseball. And they, even though a guy gets traded all year long, his stats should count. But certainly it's one of those challenging moments. Staying with Giancarlo Stanton, he's not just being talked about when it comes to the MVP. He's talked about in possibly being traded. The Marlins sold the team to Derek Jeter and company, and it's really talked about how Derek Jeter and the new ownership could be $80 million under um, going into next season. And they're going to have to consider trading Giancarlo Stanton because of the fact that he's going to make $25 million this, uh, this coming season in 2018. And then from there on, 26, 26, 29, eventually the uppers of 32. Of course, in 2021, he's got a player contract where he can opt out or he can continue playing. And most likely on what the money that he'll be making during that span of 29 to 32 million every single year. You expect him to take that contract because it's hard to find a better one right now. And at the end, he still has a full no trade clause. So, for the beginning of this point, we always talked about the Marlins fan base and how it seems to be every single time it's the same thing. They get very good, they have good players, you think they're going to keep the organization the way there is, and then they start selling everybody in a fire sale. 
and it almost seems like the new organization, Derek Jeter and company, are coming in with the same game plan, and will that just anger and destroy the fan base more? Will it anger them? Definitely. Will it destroy them? I don't know about destroying because they put up this long already, so why would you give in at this point? Um, to me, <laughs> I honestly, it's, it's uh, so it's one of those things where it's like, I, I feel like if I'm a Marlins fan, it's different this time. And I, I know you can't, you don't, if you're a Marlins fan, you don't want to say that because you don't want to buy into all the bullcrap, but Derek Jeter's coming in here with the mindset saying, first of all, this team needs to make money. This team lost a lot of money over the past couple of years. And two, we need to make build some consistency. See, the thing is with all these Marlins teams is that they build them up. They build them up that year when they got Jose Reyes, they got Hanley Ramirez. Uh, they were trying to chase after Prince Fielder or Albert Pujols. But there was no consistency after that. And that's why it fell apart. And that's why they had to trade everybody because they don't know how to continue after they already built it up. Same thing with Giancarlo Stanton. If anything, Marlins fans should be angry at the old um, franchise owner and the old organization because they gave Giancarlo Stanton a ridiculous contract knowing that this team was not going to be anywhere near ready to compete in any of the, what, first three to four years? I mean, come on. I mean, this team is not built to compete for a playoff spot. Even when Jose Fernandez was still alive, it was just Jose Fernandez and Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah, you had good players like Marcelo Suna, you had Christian Yelich, but this team was not built to compete. It was not built to contend. So really, that's the old organization's fault. If I'm Derek Jeter, he's not doing anything wrong. He's coming in here, he's bringing in his guys, and he says, I want to make this my team. I'm going to do everything all over again. And he was very open with Giancarlo Stanton saying, we're going to rebuild. Giancarlo Stanton has been very open saying, I don't want to be part of a rebuild. So if you're Derek Jeter, what are you going to do? Keep a disgruntled Giancarlo Stanton for what? For the fans' sake or for money's sake? You're not going to do that. You're going to rebuild this team from the bottom to the top, and you're going to try and build a contender. So it may anger some fans, but at the end of the day, it's what's best for the organization. You're not going to be able to compete with Giancarlo, with Giancarlo Stanton for any time right now and at least not be able to compete and keep the organization healthy. You can go out there and spend money and bring somebody in to help Giancarlo Stanton, but what does that do for the long term of the franchise? It's not a good look. So for Derek Jeter, he's just trying to put his stamp on things. If you're a fan, yeah, it's going to anger you, but I think you have to believe Somebody with Der like Derek Jeter, who seems to have the right mindset, that things are going to at least get better, and if not, more consistent at least in Miami. You know, it's one of those things is, will it just be Stanton? Or we're also hearing the possibility of D. Gordon, which, as a Mets fan, I would love to see the Mets trade for D. Oh, Gordon. I think everybody's gone here in this situation. I think Derek Jeter has made it very clear they're going to rebuild. And how do you rebuild? By getting rid of some of your top stars. Again, even if they hang on to D. Gordon, even if they hang on to Stanton, I can't realistically see the Marlins contending next year or the year after. So I think you're seeing a, a fire sale here where Marcelo Suna is also going to get moved, and you can even see Christian Yelich as well, too, because those guys have high value. You can get a lot back for those guys, but you have to do it at the right time, and I really, ideally, that's this offseason. Yeah, and again, the Marlins and Jeter said, like, we're not looking to trade Justin Bohr, we're not looking to trade Marcel Azuna or Christian Yelich or, or JT Realmuto, and that's fine and all, and I, I get you can want to trade, like, a guy like Martin Prado and a guy like Giancarlo Stanton and even, like, Dee Gordon, but you're taking away, if you do so, your leadoff hitter, your power hitter, two of your best average hitters in Dee Gordon and in Giancarlo Stanton, and you're going to just go after one thing, and that's pitching. 
which I think that's the only thing the Marlins truly are missing at this point. And yes, they could go out and sign pitchers like Lance Lynn and Yu Darvish. Of course, that will put them way over whatever cap they wanted to hit. And will it result in fans coming in to see this team play at that point? And I don't think so at the end of the day. So I understand the point of wanting to sell. And I think, like you said, you know, the Marlins have dealt with it time and time again. Don't expect it to change right now because they just don't have the money to put out a team that's going to have to be this all-money lineup. So I think they're going to have to look to trade Giancarlo Stanton. Who they traded to, that's a whole other different conversation. But at the end of the day, I think the only thing that the Marlins are going to be concerned with getting is getting young pitchers to try and bring in, to try and make the team competitive. But I, I think the moment we see one of these players get dealt is the moment we're going to see like three or four of them get dealt because I don't think it will just end with Stanton. I think it goes to D. Gordon. And even still, I think it might go to another guy like a Christian Yelich. I know they want to keep him, but there's just there's going to be another player or two that's going to have to get dealt in my mind. Probably a Martin Prado as well if he's still under contract at this point because that has worked out terribly for them these last two years. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I do think it also just still sends in a run message uh, because it's just saying, hey, new owners, same game plan. And I don't think a lot of people and a lot of fan bases, and especially in Miami, where they want to compete, where they want to win. You, you saw it with the Miami Heat at times. And you're going to see the same thing at the end of the day with the Marlins. You look at this team, and it's all offense, and it's a great team to watch. Uh, there's no pitching behind it, but at the end of the day, you still have to try and put a better team on. And going with less money at the end of the day, it's, it's tough to buy into. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think it's fair criticism, though, for the new ownership, for fans to just throw their gloves on the floor and say, new ownership, same game plan. Yeah, it has to be the same game plan to at least start things up. Um, you don't know where things are going to go after that. Now, in two to three years, if we're still talking about them selling players, then yeah, it's the same game plan. But I think any when any new owner takes over, they want to put their stamp on things. They got to, you know, basically re-gut this team, especially when it's not left in a good spot to begin with. I think rebuilding is really the only thing you can do at this point in time. Because uh, like you said, even if you go out there and you sign players, spending money isn't always the answer either. So I think in Derek Jeter and the new organization's defense, fans should at least say, okay, new, same game plan, but maybe, again, this is going to result in some more consistency in the future. See, in my mind, if you're going to do this, if you're going to start selling like crazy, then you have to do exactly what the Chicago White Sox did this year, where they didn't just sell everything. That They sold whatever they touched, practically. They sold anything that moved. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even the head athletic trainer was on his way out. If you had a contract, you were being sold. Pretty much that's just how it went. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you were Chris Sale. It didn't matter if you were Jose Quintana. It just didn't matter who you were at that point. The only one that they kept, I think, was Jose Abreu at that point. And I think they keep him because his contract's not that large. Exactly. It's a team-friendly contract that you can hang on to. Even Chris Sale's was extremely team-friendly. So but think, it wasn't going to be when he hit free agency. <laughs> of course not. And I think the same can be said about Abreu's. But 
I think that's where you have to look at it and say, if we trade Giancarlo Stanton, we have to trade D. Gordon. If we trade D. Gordon, we have to trade Martin Prado. And if we trade Martin Prado, we have to trade Christian Yelich at this point. Or Because it's going to look at, okay, if your team's not going to be competitive for another two years, but every single one of your players is going to hit arbitration and get a, a big salary at that point and a big contract because of that one-year arbitration, you're going to have to look to trade that player. So I think there's that mindset of what the Marlins are going to have to do, and I think we're going to see almost like a White Sox moment of a complete fire sale, and it's going to bring in a ton of prospects because these are guys that should own a ton of prospects behind them. But again, it's going to make it real tough to buy into the Marlins. It's just going to make it we're buying into the Marlins' future like we do every other year. So I think that's one thing to look at. Let's jump into the Cy Young winners. Last night, Corey Kluber won the Cy Young, representing the Cleveland Indians, the first Cleveland Indian to win two Cy Youngs ever, and Matt Scherzer becomes the 10th player to ever win three Cy Young awards. Jose, which one stands out to you more? Uh, To me, I think it's the three Cy Young awards for Matt Scherzer. Uh, I mean, that's simply amazing in itself, especially when you know how many great pitchers we have. In this league, you know, it's it's a pitching friendly league now, especially over the past ten years. Um, so, I mean, really, you could have flipped a coin in either of these races. You know, it could have been Chris Sale, it could have been Severino. On the other side, it could have been Kershaw, it could have been Strasburg. So, I mean, you're talking about Scherzer almost missing out on this great accomplishment. And when you talk about three Cy Young Award winners, most of those guys are Hall of Famers or future Hall of Famers. And I think Max Scherzer is heading on that route. I mean, you see his numbers since 2013, I believe. I think he leads the league. And, um, and win strikeouts, and I forget the other category as well, too. But this guy's a machine, and he's a Cy Young candidate every single year. He's kind of like Mike Trout, where he's going to be in a discussion for MVP every single year. And, um, you know, again, it's simply amazing to win three. Uh, again, not a lot of guys even get to win one. I'm sure there's plenty of pitchers out there that are really good in their career that's never won a Cy Young award. So to own three, um, that's fantastic. For Kluber, you know, tip your cap to him, too. It's impressive to win two, especially when you're on one team because um, that means a lot to their fan base and whatnot. But right now it stands out to me for Scherzer because I believe he won one in the AL and now it's two for him in the NL. So you're talking about um, at least one in each league. And again, especially like you just said, only 10 other pitchers have been able to do that, have win three. And I'm pretty sure most of those guys are the Hall of Famers or future Hall of Famers. So Scherzer has himself on the good track right now. Yeah, and back-to-back Cy Young Awards for Matt Scherzer. That's a rare accomplishment in and of itself. The last couple players that were able to do that was Clayton Kershaw and Tim Lincecum. But it's still an extremely rare accomplishment, and Scherzer being the best righty in all of baseball, in my mind, just phenomenal numbers. There's nothing to take away from Corey Kluber. He had an amazing season, finished with the MLB Best ERA this year. I think many people expected him to win the Cy Young in the American League as well. Scherzer, I think, was considered the favorite, but you're talking about going against your teammate, Steven Stratzberg, and, of course, someone that's always considered every year, Clayton Kershaw. But to me, you look past a few of those other numbers, the wins, the ERA, the strikeouts, which was the NL best, the opposing batting average a 178 opponent batting average this season. That was the lowest since, I think, 1920. I mean, just unfathomable what we're talking about. In a year also when MLB hit the most home runs in a single season, and yes, Scherzer does give up the home run ball occasionally, but 
just not allowing base hits throughout the season and just always being the dominant pitcher he has been. And with the manager of the year, it seemed interesting. The two choices we saw winning manager of the year, twins Paul Molitor and Tori Lavolo of the Diamondbacks. And, you know, when you think about it, you had guys like Dave Roberts of the Dodgers, Terry Francona of the Indians, A.J. Hinch of the Astros, and these are guys that all won 100-plus games compared to the Twins, who just got into that second wildcard spot. The Diamondbacks, yeah, they had more wins than most of the National League teams, but they still finished with a wildcard spot. But it really was interesting to see the voters' decisions on manager of the year, where it's not going for the team that wins the most games or 100-plus games when you expect those three teams to be there. It's the teams that, you know, you didn't expect to get there, to get to the playoffs, to have a great season, and they went with those choices. And I really like the voters' decisions on the manager of the year. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to manager of the year, I don't necessarily always look at wins and losses. If I had a vote, I'm looking at the manager who outperformed expectations. You look at the American League, Paul Molitor, um, the Minnesota Twins. He was the manager last year. He was the manager, you know, a year before that when they were one game away from a wild card game. Following year, they lose 100 plus games. How do you rebound from that when no one expects anything out of you? You make it to the wild card game again. That to me in itself was a shoe in for Paul Molitor to win AL manager of the year. To go from a 100 loss team to making the playoffs this year, that's a fantastic turnaround. They were competitive all year long. They spent sometime in first place in the AL Central before the Indians took off. So Paul Molitor definitely deserves it. Again, that's no disrespect to A.J. Hinch. And the other candidate, yeah, they won Terry Francona. They won over 100-plus games. But that's an outp- that's an, clearly an overperformance of expectation from the Minnesota Twins. No one expected them to be good this year. No one really knew what to expect, especially when they were a playoff team one year, then bad team the next year. Now they make the playoffs again. That, to me, in itself was already a shoe-in for Molitor a win. For the National League, uh, again, same thing with the Diamondbacks. This is a team they brought in a first-year manager in Tori Lavulo. He goes, he make, he helps them make the playoffs. So I'm okay with them picking him, but this is a situation where I would have chose Dave Roberts, the guy with more wins, because, I mean, there was a period in time where the Dodgers were clearly the best team in baseball, winning 30 out of their 35 games. And I understand they went to a tough stretch after that, but you're looking at a guy who is a manager of a team that has one of the highest payrolls in baseball, Yet they have one of the most awkward players as well, too. You know, no one has no one said Chris Taylor is my starting center fielder from the get-go. You know, you have a guy like Justin Turner, who's really this renaissance guy of a guy who his career was kind of dead when he was in New York. He was always a utility player. He's a bench player. Comes to L.A. as this fantastic player now. Managing rookies like Seager and Bellinger. Getting Yasiel Puig to be on his best behavior for the most part. And really Puig having a fantastic year this year in L.A., too. But for Dave Roberts... All the mixing and matching and all the analytical stuff that he does, pulling Rich Hill after he goes two times through the lineup, being able to manage egos over there in L.A. Again, with guys like Puig and the rest of that pitching staff as well, too. He really did a great job in L.A. Again, I'm not taking anything away from anybody else who is a candidate. I'm okay with Lavula winning the award, but that was an instance where I would have gave it to Dave Roberts instead. Yeah, what's interesting to me is um, that for the NL Manager of the Year, the top three candidates all coming from the same division. Tori Lavolo, Diamond Bats, Dave Roberts, Dodgers, and Bud Blatt from the Colorado Rockies. And I think that's a standpoint on how well 
the NL West did this season. But, you know, I, I don't think the Diamondbacks were really considered as a team expected to do well. I think everybody expected the Dodgers to be great, the Giants to be right there in there, and the Rockies to be that kind of sleeper team. But nobody, I think, really expected the Diamondbacks to take off and do what they did this season. And I think that's a huge credit to the manager at the end of the day. And as much as I'd want to say, Dave Roberts had a phenomenal season. The Dodgers played incredible this year. Obviously, they came up just short in the World Series as well. But there, there was a time when the Dodgers just played completely terrible also. And I think that can't be ignored. I mean, the Diamondbacks played consistent baseball. They didn't go off like the Dodgers did at one point this season, which pretty much took them out of all chances to make a division uh, spot and only had a wild card opportunity. But there was just a time where the Dodgers just, at the same point when the Indians were winning 22 straight games, the Dodgers could barely win two games in that span. So I, I think that's also a consideration as you have to take into uh, play because of the fact that this team could have had the best record in all of baseball. And instead, they finished with, yes, uh, the most wins in baseball this season, but certainly they could have done better, especially as how the year was going for them. And again, I, I do like the voters' decisions of taking a team that wasn't expected to do well and does extremely well this year in, in the Twins' perspective in the Diamondbacks and probably Bud Blatt wins it if he finishes with the number one wild card spot instead of the Diamondbacks. So I think that's almost where you consider the fact on how well those teams did. So I do like how the voters decided this one. The MLB qualifying offers. So $17.4 million. Nine players got a one-year deal, declined each one of them. The Royals had three players on this list. Eric Hosmer, Lorenzo Cain, Mike Moustakis. The Cubs had two, Jake Arrieta and Wade Davis, Indians Carlos Santana, Rockies Greg Holland, Alex Cobb of the Rays, and the Cardinals Lance Lynn. All nine of the players declined the qualifying offer, meaning that there will be a first-round pick between them if a team signs any of these players. Obviously, the Royals, with three of these players on their list of Eric Hosmer, Lorenzo Cain, Mike Moustakis, we knew these players were going to be free agents going into this year. There were questions about whether the Royals were going to deal any of them before the season or during the season. Instead, they just hold on to them, try and fight out the entire year for a playoff spot, and qualify the three offer players. Jose, any surprise that any of these players just all declined it a couple of years. We've had some players occasionally accept the qualifying offer, but not this year. Yeah. I mean, $17 million is a lot of, a lot of money just for one year of baseball. Um, so, I mean, I would have probably taken it, but anyways, I mean, no, I mean, there's a common trend with the guys who take it and the guys who don't, obviously the guys like Eric Cosmer, Lorenzo Kane, those guys are not going to take it. Why? It's not because they're disloyal. Um, it's not because they hate the team that they played for. It's because they have an opportunity to make more money. They're going to make more money. Um, other guys, though, they take the qualifying offer because, one, they know that their value wasn't that good this year. They know they could put up a better year. Some guys who are in their contract year and they have a bad year are like, you know what? I'll take the qualifying offer. I'll get paid $17 million, and I could pad my stats for next year and get a bigger contract the year after. So it's, it's a little bit of a gamble game. You saw, like, with the Mets last year, Neil Walker took the qualifying offer. Why? Because he was hurt the majority at the end of the year. 
He knew he probably wasn't going to get a big contract, so he came back, tried to put together a better year. Didn't work out so well for him. Um, same thing for a guy like Jeremy Hellickson. Knew he wasn't going to get a big contract at the end of the year. Took the qualifying offer. You know, still put up some good stats in the year after as well, too. So um, it's not surprising that the list of guys um, declined it. The one guy I am surprised about is Carlos Santana. Um, I'm surprised, and yet I'm not surprised because, you know, the first base market is going to be a little bit tricky this year. Obviously, everybody who's in it is going to go after Eric Hosmer. That's the big meal ticket. That's the big guy in the market. That's the big first baseman that everybody's going to want to grab. And I think Carlos Santana is thinking, whoever doesn't get Hosmer is going to come knock on my door. So this is still a chance for me to get a lot of money. Uh, Cleveland is still a small market team. Cleveland may not place emphasis on going after Santana because they do have an Arcanarcion, who I know they like as their DH, but he could still he's still a pretty good defensive first baseman as well, too. So there might not be a priority for the Indians to go out there and chase Santana back, especially when they're not going to give him a lot of money. So if you're Santana here, you're thinking, hey, I can get a big payday. My numbers are decent enough, and I can fill in for whoever doesn't get Eric Hosmer. Yeah. Uh, the big surprise for me, Alex Cobb, and not only by Cobb declining $17.4 million on a one-year deal, but the Rays offering $17.4 million on a one-year deal. I think that's the crazier part on this one. But Alex Cobb, I mean, this guy that had Tommy John surgery, he missed multiple. He missed an entire season. He's He hadn't had the best of numbers. He came back this year finally, but... You're also going into a market where you're versing guys like Lance Lynn, Jake Arrieta, you Darvish, and at the end of the day, you still hold a first pick around your name. So I think that's a real tough decision on Alex Cobb to decline it, and and to me, that's the one that really surprised me the most compared to the other guys. You know, top two closers, good pitchers, and all around good players, especially with the Royals, but. Cobb, one, getting the offer by the Rays and then declining the offer, I think that's a little bit of a surprising move. I think Cobb more just wanted to get out of Tampa when you consider it at the end of the day. But let me ask you this about the nine players. Let's say any of them accepted or something. Do you think the next year's free agent class was in the back of their mind? Like, hey, if I accept this, there's a chance I don't get a huge contract next season compared to all the free agents that are next year. Yeah, I think that's definitely weighing on a lot of people's brains as well, too. And I think that's also, I mean, not only, I mean, and exactly what you said, like, they might not get a contract this year either, because a lot of teams are saving up. I mean, last year, when Inokinarcion was on the market for so long, and the Rangers were saying, oh, we don't have money for him, that's bullcrap. The Rangers have plenty of money. They're just saving it for the right person. And it doesn't help that all these superstars and all these bigger names are coming in 2018 that you're going to see a lot of guys take more qualifying offers this year because you just don't know what's going to happen this year. You don't know what's going to happen next year. So I think you're right. I think that definitely weighs on their mind, too, going into this offseason. And, of course, there's still you, Darvish, J.D. Martinez, and others that don't even have the qualifying offer to their name because they were traded. So I think that also makes this free agent market a little bit of challenging for the nine players. And I think if there was one player that could possibly get no contract and wind up like that Stephen Drew or uh, a few others in the past, I, I think it could be Alex Cobb in that situation because of the fact that there are just better pitchers that have been a little bit more healthier than Cobb over the last few years. And again, some pitchers don't have that first pick around their name. 
I just think Alex Cobb is banking on Joe Madden uh, picking him up for the Cubs, honestly. No, that, <laughs> that would be interesting. And it would be a good move. I mean, Alex Cobb is a good pitcher, but I get what you're saying. In a market where people are trying to save money for next year and people are trying to grab everybody they can before next year hits, um, Alex Cobb is a guy that might get lost in the shuffle. Replacing Jake Arrieta with Alex Cobb could be a Chicago Cub uh, idea and along the line. I didn't even think that far with Joe Madden. Uh, speaking about free agents, Shohei Otani, uh, the Japanese pitcher, uh, but not just the pitcher, the Japanese hitter, the 23-year-old, and I'll just read off some of his numbers. In 85 career appearances pitching, spanning 543 innings, Otani has a 2.52 ERA. He averages 10 strikeouts and 3 watts per 9 innings and only surrendered just 24 home runs in those 500-plus innings of work and even has a hitter. Again, a 23-year-old hitter. 286 batting average with 48 home runs, 166 RBIs in 403 games. Now, of course, you look at that and you cut it in half possibly from a idea of 162 game season. But still, for 403 games, impressive numbers nonetheless from him. And I think this is really what stands out the most. If he waits two more years, he can have that you Darvish type contract that contract where anybody can sign him for a lot of money, that he has more options in his contract. But because he waits to 23-year-old, he still has that international signing held to him that they can only pay him, a, a team can only pay the mats on the international cap. And I believe the Minnesota Twins or the Arizona Diamondbacks are one of the top teams at $3 million. So a lot of teams don't have a lot of money on this, and it's really Otani's leaving because he wants to play in the MLB, want to show what he already has now, and I think he's almost doing it because he gets to pit the team he wants to go to when you consider that the only difference between first and second could be about a 100,000 or even like maybe a million, but clearly he does not care about the millions of dollars that he's giving up when he's going into the MLB two years early than what he could have gone in. And Jose, what's your thoughts on that type of move? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to that kind of stuff, it's always kind of tricky because, you know, you read off those stats and they sound fantastic. But, I mean, when you get these guys from overseas, you just don't know how it's going to convert into the MLB. And again, now this guy is being highly advertised as a dominant player. Uh, so it seems like he might be the next big thing. But, I mean, let's run down the list of some of the other guys that came over. Masahiro Tanaka's come over. He's been great. Um, but a couple of years back, you remember Keigawa? Where is he now? We never heard of him since. Daisuke Matsuzaka had a couple of good years, but then he really tailed off at the end of his career. You know, even Kenta Maeda hasn't been what we thought he was going to be so far here in the U.S. And then, you know, there's just a series of other players that have come over and have flopped, but then you have other guys that come over and have been successful. So really, when you're getting these guys, it's almost like a flip of the coin. And maybe since he's a two-way player, he can hit. And he can pitch. Maybe it's more of a guarantee. But honestly, as a team, it's a real big gamble taking a chance on these guys. Is it worth it? Probably. But um, but you know, like you said, you know, he can actually choose his team. You know, so this is like an actual free agent here. He might go where the money is, or he might go somewhere where he can win, or maybe he'll go to a team where he feels comfortable. I think a team like the Yankees and the Dodgers is probably really attractive for him. Why? 
because there's already Japanese influence on that team. If you don't think Tanaka's picking up the phone and trying to convince him to come to the Yankees, I think you're crazy. Same thing if uh, Kenta Maeda's not picking up the phone and trying to convince him to come to the Dodgers instead, too. So I think he'll most likely go to a team that already has that Japanese culture in place where the fan base and the teams have already accepted those kind of players. Um, but it's a big gamble. It's a big 50-50 chance because you just don't know how those stats are going to convert to the MLB. Yeah, it's, it's it's certainly interesting on the fact that I, I don't think money's the decision-making here because if it was, you wait out two more years. You're already considered the Babe Ruth of baseball, almost, to say, and because of the fact that he's pitching and he's hitting and he's dominating both in Japan and he's he has that high of a reputation behind him. And if you wait the two years, you're going to get paid by a big market team that wants to bring you in. And like you, and this is more he's going to pick the team he wants because I don't think if millions of dollars was in his decision, hundreds of thousands or a couple thousand dollars won't be his end all decision of a difference maker. It's going to be, you know, does he want to pitch and hit? Will he choose a National League team? Just by that standpoint, does he uh, believe the idea that it, does he want to enter now before the National League comes into an American League standpoint of a designated hitter so he can hit majority of the time when he still pitches or if he becomes a pitcher, he has different options. Uh, so I think this is going to be one of those interesting moments that he's going to really just choose the team he wants to go to. And he may even have the influence of saying, hey, I'm going to choose your team if I'm an everyday position player with being an every five-day starting pitcher. So I think this is going to be one of those moments where he holds all the cards on the table and it becomes one of those things where on a player that may cost you only $2 million or $3 million at most, probably even less than that, and he could be a pitcher for you, a relief pitcher for you, a starting pitcher for you, or an everyday hitter for you. And you're going to have an extra roster spot because he can do both at that point. There's just so many opportunities that he brings to the table that I don't think anybody of all 30 teams should just be saying, hey, do you want to come to our team? And I think that's almost what you're going to see from every single MLB team. And it's going to be interesting to see what his influences are. Will it be because he wants to go to a large market like a New York, whether Mets or Yankees, where he has the option to hit if he pitches or if he just plays the field? Will it be more of, like you said, Tanaka or an Ichiro or or you Darvish or Kenta Maeda? Will it be somebody that has been in these type of leads before that could influence him to come to a certain team? So it, it's certainly going to be an interesting standpoint of which team he considers and even if he doesn't want to play in a large market and he wants to go to a team like Minnesota to somewhere along the line where it's not going to be a lot of pressure of media a lot of different options he holds and he holds all the cards on the table so I'm certainly this is one of the more entertaining free agent players in my mind this coming year anything you want to bounce off that no I mean uh, again like you said it's interesting and I, I, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to say anything about the players, but like, uh, it's just a huge gamble when you take chances on players like this, because again, you just don't know how it's going to convert. Um, there's been a lot of successes when it comes to the international players coming over to the MLB, but there's also been a lot of failures as well too. So it's just going to be interesting to see which teams are in on him, because um, it sounds like a lot of teams are interested, which means a lot of teams are confident that he's going to be a success over here. 
And again, I'm just interested once he gets in, like you said, the different combinations, since he can hit, what are teams going to do? Are teams going to listen to his preference? Are they going to go with what they need? Like if they need a big time hitter, are they really going to let him pitch? Or like you said, if he wants to pitch and he wants to bat up while pitching, I can only imagine he's going to lead the league in hitting as a pitcher. Uh, but but um, in general, though, you know, what does it mean? How do teams go about this? And and how do they set up for him um, to make him the best fit in the MLB possible? It's just a really big 50-50 gamble, and I just I'm willing. I'm really interested to see which teams are going to take that gamble. Yeah, and and to me also, the big question will be if he goes to a National League team and he is pitching a game, he's going to be higher in the lineup. And in that point, a lot of managers <laughs> he's going to bat cleanup. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to bat cleanup to begin with, but I mean, you could see him batting sixth at least in those I don't know situations. About that. I, I I certainly he's not a nine hitter. He's certainly not that. So I think you could see him batting sixth, seventh when the season begins. And if he's hitting extremely well, we're talking about a pitcher that could be batting in the middle of the order by halfway through the year. And it's going to be interesting in my mind the direction they go from there where you're talking about could they be doing a double switch and putting him in a normal position, still staying in the lineup, and taking out a nine hitter and sort of like putting a pitcher in that scenario. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting moves, especially if he goes to the National League. I certainly look forward to seeing that, whether or not they do certain things on if he's going to pitch, if he's just going to be a reliever. So I think there's a lot of different opportunities for him, and especially if he's a reliever, then you're talking about 10 hitters on the field for for one team compared to another. So a huge advantage for a National League team there. But let's jump into the NFL for a moment. And let's begin with the Bills and Terod Taylor. Uh, Terod Taylor not going to start this week. Instead, it's going to be backup Nathan Peterman. And it's a weird moment for the Bills to consider this when they currently sit 5-4 and four in the AFC, currently hold the sit seed for the AFC playoffs. They've lost two games in a row. But is it a little hasty to make a change like this and going with a backup in a game that's really viewed as a must-win for your playoffs? No, not at all. Not in my opinion. I mean, Tyrod Taylor has not been playing well for the past couple of weeks. And the last two losses for the Bills have been terrible. I mean, you lose to the Jets, then you lose big time to the Saints. I understand the Saints are on a winning streak, but you cannot lose that game to New Orleans. Uh, I think last week was a must-win game for them. You really shot yourselves in the foot in terms of, you know, trying to make the playoffs and try to hold on to that spot. I know they still hold the sixth spot um, in the playoff scenario. But you're slowly slipping away. And if you're the coach, if you're the head coach of the Bills, good. Because what this could do is it could also light a fire under Tyron Taylor. Maybe he comes back next week or he comes out in practice and he's he's back to his normal self. But for the Bills, you gotta play the hot hand. And if Tyron Taylor's not getting it done, make that switch. I'm not I'm not I mean, I'm not gonna say I don't love the move. Um, I just you know, it is kind of weird because this kid does have limited experience, so you're kind of just throwing a rookie into the fire. But hey, we've seen in the past when rookies take over sometimes they run with it, so let's see what Peterman's got. And, you know, a change is in order, and if Tyrod Taylor wants his job back, he better start working for it. I I personally hate the move. I don't understand it. You, let's, you look at the last two losses. They lost to the Jets, like you said, 34-21. to The defense was not there. They lose this last week to the New Orleans Saints. Yeah, the Saints have won seven straight games and one of the best teams in the NFC, but... Obviously, you shouldn't be blown out the water that badly. They lost 47-10. to 10. 
is this on Tyrod Taylor? Or is this on the fact that the defense just hasn't been there the last two weeks? Even still, the run game hasn't been there that well. LaShawn McCoy hasn't been excellent these last two games. He's actually been completely terrible these last two games. So to bench Tyrod Taylor when it's not Tyrod Taylor, if he was throwing five interceptions these last two games, by all means, you've got a reason to bench him. But you're 5-4, and four, you're versing the Chargers, you only have one win on the road this season, and you've been blown out the last two games, and everything's been more of a fault on the rest of the team than on the quarterback. And the only thing that we have on Nathan Peterman, of the drive that he's done this year, is he came in for Terod Taylor when they were losing 40-3. to and he goes 75 yards in a few plays for a touchdown to make it 40-10 to 10 late in a football game. Great, but I'll be the first to say, when you're up 37 points going into the fourth quarter, or in the fourth quarter, do we really care of how a backup does when nobody's looking at that game anymore and it's more we just have to kill the remaining part of this plot we're up so much? So it's really hard to buy into that type of play that he's gone 75 yards and he looked really impressive on a drive. Sure, anybody could look impressive. They give downfield and the middle of the field wide open half the time so you can just catch the ball, make a completion, and kill some more clock. So I don't agree with the move at all. I don't see the benefit in this. And if the Chargers did uh, beat up the Bills in this game and Peterman struggles, I think it's going to really question a lot of decisions by the coaching, by the general manager, by the ownership, because I really feel this is more on, are the Bills looking to go in a different direction to see what they have? And because Terod Taylor would be paid $6 million on the 3rd of March if he's still on the roster. So I think this is really more of, are they looking to see what they can do without Terod Taylor? And again, when you're currently the sit seat at the playoff spot, it just doesn't feel like the right time to do so. I I I just don't understand the uh, the mindset of the Bills right now, and they've traded away stars, but this is this is just silly in my mind. You, you don't bench your starting QB. Yeah, I mean, but you know, your starting QB is not getting it done right now. And again, I understand that the defense had a lot to do with the last two losses, but shaking things up is never a bad thing. And Sometimes Tyrod Taylor looks like he loses his focus and sometimes he doesn't want to be there. So, again, maybe this is just a stern message being sent to Taylor. You know, get your stuff together. Otherwise, we're not afraid to move in a different direction. Nine of 18 passes for 56 yards and an interception a game against the Saints. Against the Jets, 29 of 40, 72.5 percentage completion, 285 yards, two touchdowns. Sat seven times in that game against the Jets. Against the Raiders, where they won by 20, goes 20 of 27, 74% completion, 165 yards, one touchdown, zero interceptions. I, I, I don't get the idea that it's on him and he's been struggling. He, he fumbled, uh, lost a fumble against the Jets. He ran it in for a touchdown as well against the Jets. But again, you look at these last two games. Part of the reason they lose, the Saints score 47 points. That's on defense. The Jets sack him seven times. Yeah, you can tell me he's got to get out of the pocket better. He's got to get a little bit more time. But that's a lot on the offensive line. We're not going to blame Dak Prescott for getting sacked eight times against the Falcons that much. Yeah, Dak can do something to maybe avoid one or two. Or the coaching can change a move 
or try and get better blocking. But I, I don't. I don't agree that Nathan Peterman gives you a better option to win a game against the Chargers than Terod Taylor. Going with the Cowboys, Zeke withdraws the suspension appeal. So he is officially suspended for another five games as he took the first game suspension last week against the Falcons. And boy, did the Cowboys struggle in that one. Cowboys lost to the Falcons 27-7. to Dak Prescott sat eight times in the football game. He was abused on the field, and we talked about it last week on the podcast. It's going to be interesting on how Dak Prescott and the Cowboys can do without Ezekiel Elliott. And was this the beginning of the end for the Cowboys this season? I mean, it's pretty funny when you look at it because how did that game start? It started with the Cowboys winning that game 7 nothing, right? And Dak Prescott rushed it, rushed it into the end zone himself. It's like, see, they don't need Ezekiel Elliott. Then they go and they get battered twenty-seven to seven. I don't. I mean, I don't know if this is what's going to be the Cowboys every, all season long. I mean, they did face the Atlanta Falcons, and I know the Falcons aren't having the best of years, but this is still a Falcons defense that was one of the top defenses last year. They struggled some a little bit this year, but again, you know, the, the Cowboys did not play well, and the Falcons overmatched them. So I can't say that this is what's going to happen for the rest of the year. But the Cowboys will struggle, especially in a year where Des Bryant is non-existent. And really, there's no really great receivers that Dak Prescott really has to throw to. A lot of it is going to rely on Prescott, and he's still young. And I still think he's going to be one of the better QBs in the league next year or the year after that. But he's still a very young QB. And when you have that young of a QB, you need to have a two-way game. You can't be one-dimensional. You can't just pass the ball. He can't just be rushing the ball like crazy because then that becomes too predictable. And not having a great running back like Ezekiel Elliott behind you is going to factor in, and especially when the Eagles are playing this well. And I think it's safe to say that with the suspension, that basically the NFC East is already awarded to the Philadelphia Eagles, especially when they're going to face the Cowboys this weekend, I believe. Um, when the Cowboys win this game, I mean, when the Eagles win this game, because I really think the Philadelphia Eagles are going to win on Sunday. When the Eagles win this game, the division is theirs. Now the question is, for the Cowboys, can you do enough to hang on to a wild card spot? And I just don't see it, especially when you see some of the teams that are competing for those spots. You know, you have teams like the Vikings. You have teams like the Panthers, who I think are, you know, are slowly, they're, they're kind of a weird team. But you have teams like the Falcons, who are still trying to hang on. And I just don't know if the Cowboys are going to have enough to hang on when you have that many teams competing for two spots um, for those two wildcard spots, especially when the NFC East is basically already wrapped up. The Cowboys face the Eagles this week. They still have... Week 17 against the Eagles. By then, probably the Eagles won't be playing a for-real game against the Cowboys because they'll have clinched a number one bye or at least a bye week. You still have to play Seattle. You still have to play Oakland. You still have two other division games. You have losses to Green Bay already this season. You have a loss to Atlanta, who both teams as well are 5-4 and four with the Cowboys. No, they're done. Yeah, they played pretty well that first half against the Atlanta Falcons. It was only a 10-7 game at the end of the first half. And as the game progressed, Dak Prescott wound up on the floor a lot more often, and it just resulted in the Falcons taking a larger and larger lead. Eagles, better defense, as much as I can say, a better offense than the Falcons. Uh, I don't know how they've been playing this year. And, and let's not forget, Devontae Freeman left the game Within, in the first quarter. So the starting running back for the Falcons left the game, and they still wound up blowing them out by 20. 
Uh, if the Cowboys want to win, they're going to have to use Alfred Morris a lot more than what they did. He had a good game against the Falcons, but you're, this is a team where the Cowboys have had success when Zeke was running the ball 20 to 25 times a football game. Alfred Morris was that type of running back that could run it 20 to 25 times. You have to run the ball more with Alfred Morris every single drive. We saw in the, first, uh, the beginning of the second half, Morris came out, multiple good gains on the first couple of plays. It resulted in a couple of good plays by the Cowboys, and then they would fumble closer to the red zone. It's No, not fumble. They would get sacked and a missed field goal kept it still at a 10-7 football game, and that would be pretty much the end of the Cowboys from that point on. It's just not enough for me to look at the team and say, hey, the Cowboys are going to be fine. No, without Elliott, they're going to be in a world of pain for the next five weeks. They just don't have a good enough run game to survive that. And Dak Prescott, I've never been too high on. I'm still not high on him to say he's a great QB. I think he's good when he has a lot of time. In this game, he had no time. Most quarterbacks or all quarterbacks are going to struggle when they get sacked eight times. But this could just be one of those things that just consistently stay with the Cowboys losing multiple games because they just don't have a run game right now and Dak can't do it on his own. We haven't talked about the Jets in a while, so let's get into them. Uh, it's interesting. We expected to say more bad things about the Jets probably coming into the season, and they have surprised pretty much everyone. The Jets four and six head to the bye week after getting beat by the Bucks in a game where they really needed to win that to keep their playoff uh, hunt really in alive and go five and five going into the bye week. Instead, four and six could really put them out of it. But fans to the bye week with Josh McCown still as their starting quarterback, a 38 year old who. Nothing against him. He has looked like a top 10 QB this season. I know you were talking about you picked him up on your fantasy team uh, recently this week after Jameis Winston. Uh, but do you consider that the Jets should be looking at a QB switch? I know we haven't heard a word about Hackenberg or Petty making any uh, real noise the entire first 10 weeks of the season. But if the Jets want to see what they have at quarterback at a point where you're sort of going to be out of it now, do you consider making a switch? Uh, the answer, well, it's funny, because week one I was saying Bryce Petty should be starting. The answer is no now, though, because I'm truly convinced that the Jets know what they have already, and they know it's not good. Because um, honestly, if it would have been good, you would have seen Petty or Hackenberg starting already. I honestly believe that. I think McCowan is a straight-up stopgap guy. Um, and if one of these two kids truly deserved to be starting in the NFL – they would have taken this job already. Um, Josh McCowan has been playing fantastic. Give him a lot of credit. And that's what a stopgap QB should do. A stopgap QB should put the gauntlet down and say, hey, you want my job? you got to come take it from me. So clearly those two kids have not done anything to take the job away from Josh McCowan. Um, and I don't think there's any reason to change. Honestly, if you're the Jets, you kind of screwed up the whole tanking thing. You're 4-6. and six. You're not going to end up with a top-five pick in this year's draft, even if you go 4-10, and 10, I mean, or 4-12, and 12, I should say with six games left to play. Um, you know, if you're the Jets, you might as well just try and push it to see how many games you can win. Cause again, you're not going to end up with the pick that you originally wanted, at least the organization wanted. Um, the, the team will tell you otherwise they don't care about tanking, but if you're the Jets, you might as well try. I mean, you still have a chance despite them losing. Yes. It was a big loss for them last Sunday. You still have a chance to try and squeak one in there 
because a lot of other teams that are in that sixth spot, I mean, like we said, the Bills are only, what, five and four um, going into this week. Uh, you know, so there's still a chance that the Jets could sneak in there just by a little bit. Um, yes, they're probably going to have to win out, which is asking for a lot if you're the Jets, um, but it's still very possible. And honestly, you have six games left to play after this. If you're the Jets, because they're four and six now, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you have six games left to play. You don't need all six games to know if you're going to make the playoffs or not, right? So I doubt the Jets are going to come down to the wire. I feel like we're going to know if the Jets are going to be eliminated sooner rather than later. You still have a lot of time. And let's say if you have three games left to play and the Jets are out of it, three games is still plenty of time to throw these kids in there and see what they got. So if you're the Jets, just keep playing McCowan. He deserves the playing time. Try and push this as far as you can. And again, you're going to find out sooner rather than later. This is not going to come down to the wire or not if the Jets are going to make the playoffs. And if it does, then you keep starting McCowan. But until you're officially out of it, you keep McCowan in there. I mean, there's a chance if the Bills, Ravens, Raiders, and Dolphins all win, then you're talking about the Jets being minimum two games behind the Bills and still a game behind three other teams uh, that are not in the playoffs right now. It puts them in a real tough situation. And, of course, I mean, the Jets have been playing well this season. Let's give them credit when credit is due. They they have surprised everyone as the New York team that's playing better than the Giants. I mean, at this point, any team's playing better than the Giants. Just ask San Fran. But it's not... I, I think Hattenberg and Petty just haven't made enough noise. And, and we're not hearing a single thing from uh, from anybody in... in with the Jets on, these guys are emerging, they're getting better, and it's it just seems like it's been a mistake move of drafting Haddenbird, of drafting Petty, and it's just, it has not worked out at all for the Jets, and they're going to have to go in a completely different option come next year, because it's not like you have a 39-year-old at that point. No matter how well McCown has played this season, as really your starting QB going into next year, it's almost like that Ryan Fitzpatrick. You fall in love with a quarterback, but at the end, it's not really the option you want to have. Uh, I, you know, it's. I would love to see Haddenberg play at some point this season because he's a second-round pitch, and you just have to see at this point. And if he gets destroyed, abused, he looks terrible, then you know he plays two games, and then you know where he's at. And you know that's not your quarterback of the future. But if he does have a call, even if he comes in, and even if the team doesn't view him as fully ready, but if he comes in and he plays well, then you might have a quarterback in your hands. Then you might have somebody you can trust. You might have an entire offseason, an entire, again, preseason to work with this quarterback. But at some point, they're going to have to make the switch, like you said. If it's when they finally become fully out of a playoff opportunity, that's fine. Who knows when exactly that will come, but in my mind, they have to start another quarterback before the end of this year to really see what they have to do come draft time for the Jets, because this entire year has been, okay, this year doesn't matter, we're focused on the draft and next year. And now it's still at 10 weeks later, you still haven't figured out anything, you're still at square one in my mind. In the NFC, four teams currently sit at 5-4. and four. They're all at least a minimum of one game out of the playoffs. As division leaders are all seven and two or better. The Panthers hit seven and three at the fifth seed, and then the Seahawks at six and three. Jose, Falcons, Packers, Lions, Cowboys, all five and four. I know we mentioned Cowboys a little bit earlier, but 
who has the best chance of getting into the playoffs of these five and four teams? Honestly, I mean, it's a, it's a really tough call. I mean, they're all really, really good teams. And it really is going to depend on strength of schedule, honestly. Um, but it's also going to decide on who's going to get high. I can tell you what, right now, I just don't see the Packers getting in because of the fact that, uh, you know, there's no Aaron Rodgers. I find that very hard to believe. If they have to roll with one team, I'm actually going to roll with the, and this might shock a lot of people, but the Detroit Lions. Um, you know, you're looking at a Seattle team that, yes, they're 6-3. and three. They kind of control their own destiny because if they just keep winning, uh, you know, they can basically get in here. But, you know, there's no Richard Sherman anymore in that defense. And I'm sorry, but they're going to struggle a lot without Richard Sherman. I mean, that defense is a great defensive unit. But when one guy goes down, you know, you're talking about replacing him with another guy that's not really practicing with the first squad a lot. So that, to me in itself, is is a struggle for the Seahawks. For the Atlanta Falcons, <coughs> excuse me, I feel like Matt Ryan is not having the year that he usually has this year. And the Falcons in general, I think they're having that championship hangover except without winning the championship of course <laughs> but i mean all year long they just haven't looked like the falcons of the last year that defense has again pretty much been non-existent until last week maybe that game wakes them up maybe they try and sneak in there but the atlanta falcons should be a lot better than they are this year so to me right now the only consistent team i see is the detroit lions you know what you're gonna get out of matthew stafford uh he's kind of a one-man show because their run game is non-existent but i can't see other teams that are as consistent as the detroit lions so I'm going to take the Atlanta Falcons in this one. And here's why. You look at their schedule. They play the Seattle Seahawks this week. Yes, it's a road game against Seattle. But if they pull off this win, which is a high possibility, especially when Richard Sermon is out, the team's pretty banged up against Seattle, a Monday night football game. I'm looking forward to that game. They pick up the win. They move to a playoff spot right then and there as well. They have five games against this division left. Two against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mind you, Tampa Bay only has two wins, three wins this season. Two against the New York teams and one against the Miami Dolphins week one. Uh, you could win those games, and you put yourself in great opportunities. You still have two games against the New Orleans Saints. Yes, the Saints are 7-2 and two and won the last seven games. But it's almost like with five games left to go in this division, you control your own destiny in your division. You control your own destiny against the Seattle Seahawks this Monday night. And even look at the losses the Atlanta Falcons have at 5-4. and four. You think, okay, against the NFC, they're struggling. That's not the case. Against the NFC, they're 4-1. and one. Their only loss against NFC teams have been to the Carolina Panthers. They're, unfortunately, the Falcons went four straight games in a matter of also a bye week of playing the AFC East, in which they lost to Buffalo, they lost to Miami, they lost to New England, and they beat the New York Jets. And that was in a four-game span with the bye week. So three of their four losses are coming from AFC opponents. So this team has everything in control of their own destiny for these final few weeks. They play Seattle. They have five games against the division. They have better records against uh, against NFC opponents than most other teams, and that could be a tiebreaker for them depending on where they're at. So I really like the Falcons and the fact of, yes, their team has not been that great this season. They won't have Devontae Freeman this weekend, for uh, this Monday night against the Seattle Seahawks. But they still have plenty of moments where they could say, hey, 
we're still in this. We are not out of this at all. We may be 5-4, and four, but we're in a great opportunity. So I'm going to take the Falcons on that. Not because essentially they're the best team, but they have the best opportunity out of these five, of four teams that are 5-4 and four in my mind. In the AFC, though, the Bills at 5-4 and four currently hold the sit seed. So obviously the NFC is playing better than the AFC so far. Where the Ravens, Raiders, and Dolphins, all four and five, are sitting out just missing the playoffs. But out of these four teams right now, which team in your mind has the best chance of taking that sixth seed? Well, for the sixth seed for the uh, for the AFC, again, it's it's funny how how tight these races are uh, for the bottom half. But honestly, I think I'm going to roll with the Buffalo Bills, um, not because you know Peterman's going to go out there and light up the show or anything. But just because, again, I feel like they're the only consistent team. Yes, their defense has taken a beating over the past couple of weeks. But for the first, besides the last two weeks before that, their defense has been pretty monstrous all season long. Um, so I'm expecting on the rebound against the L.A. Chargers this week and to really get back on the horse and really find their groove again defensively. I don't think they're going to let up 47 points to the Chargers. And if they do, then there's a serious problem. But for the Baltimore Ravens, Joe Flacco has just not played, played like Flacco, um, you know, he hasn't played as himself. Their defense has been incredible, but the quarterback play hasn't been great. The offense hasn't been great for them. Oakland's been a disappointment all year long. Marshawn Lynch has been a complete bust this season for them. And I don't trust the Miami Miami Dolphins at all, too, with Jay Cutler as their QB. It's been a really terrible year for them. Um, so really, I think the Buffalo Bills are going to get that last playoff spot, not because they're a dominant team, but because they suck the least, honestly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to take the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, as you said, I, I don't trust Joe Flacco that much. Uh, Danny Woodhead is coming back this week for the Baltimore Ravens. I think that's a great moment for the Ravens. I've been huge on Alex Collins as the running back. He's not a pass catcher. They've relied on Buck Allen. I think Buck Allen's going to fall off. Danny Woodhead comes in. It gives the Ravens a little bit more opportunities going into this week. And yes, the Ravens have lost three out of their last four games. Five out of their last seven games. They have not looked great, but listen to this schedule. Green Bay, Houston, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Indianapolis, and Cincinnati. You can win minimum five of those games. The only two challenging games should be Detroit and at Pittsburgh. And even if you lose those two, you're still talking about a team that's looking at a nine and or a ten and six or a nine and seven record, and that could be good enough to get you into the playoffs right now. On the way that the other teams are just playing bad, really. The Raiders have a really tough schedule. The Dolphins have lost three in a row, and they seem to be falling off. The Bills have a very tough schedule behind them as well. They're also debating on which QB to start as we head to Week Eleven. So I, I like the Ravens on the fact that their schedule is extremely weak. They should be able to win multiple of these games, especially when you talk about the Nets too. No Aaron Rodgers, no Deshaun Watson. They should be able to easily move to six and five, going against two tough weeks against Detroit, Pittsburgh, and then their final three, Cleveland, Indianapolis, and Cincinnati. You should be able to win out those last three games, and it could come to just winning those three games. And I trust Joe Flacco in those moments where it comes to those, okay, get to the playoff situation. Joe Flacco always seems to have that moment where he kicks it into the right gear, and I think that could be the time. So I really like the Ravens to make the playoffs. Don't expect them to go far. Don't expect any of the sit seed teams to go far at the moment, just on how they played and no one has shown up. But 
I, I do like the Ravens on the fact that their schedule is just so much weaker than everybody else's. I just like how all these teams are competing for who wants to get their butt kicked by the Steelers in the first. In the, oh, I'm sorry, not the Steelers. The Chiefs. Who's going to get their butt kicked by the Chiefs in the first round? It's, it's amusing. Yeah. I mean, it could be Pittsburgh. It could be New England. It could be the Chiefs. It could be Tennessee at this point. Uh, or even Jacksonville. So a lot of different teams could be winding up as that third seed. Only one game separates those five teams. Of course, Tennessee and Jacksonville facing off in the division. The other one could be the fifth seed. But, you know, it's it's a. I would say the AFC is closer, but there's still a standout between those three teams of Pittsburgh, New England, and Kansas City because they have just been dominant so far. I think you could even include Jacksonville in there at the end. Who would have thought the Jaguars, right? I know. I mean, it's, it's, like I said, like we're looking at a situation where the Rams, the Jaguars, and even the Bills, I could throw them in that mix too. Like They could possibly all make the playoffs in the same year. I would have called you crazy if that was the case. Yeah, and uh, again, it's going to be interesting when the two teams, they, Jaguars and Titans, face each other week 17, and that could be the debating point on the division at, at that moment. Uh, we talked about the Jets. Let's talk about the Giants. Giants sticking with Ben Matadu. Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jose, is this a smoke screen to avoid the idea of a midseason firing, or are the Giants serious about keeping him long-term into next year, do you feel? Um, honestly, I think it, it should be a smoke screen. I think under no circumstances should Ben McAdoo, should, be, should he be back. Um, now, if this team just would have had this bad record, um, you can make a case why he should be back next year. But because of the reports that he lost the locker room, because players are anonymously, anonymously talking bad about him, that's when it starts to get worse, honestly, because that's when this, you really have no excuse to bring him back. I mean, unless you find out who the players are and toss them out, no one in that locker room is going to respect him going into next year. I mean, I have a bad feeling that they are going to hold on to him, that they're going to use the excuse of injuries as a reason to bring him back next year, because who knows? If Odell is healthy, if Brandon Marshall is healthy, maybe the Giants are winning a couple more games. But in all honesty, Ben McAdoo should not be back. Would I be surprised if he's back? Definitely not, because that's just how the things things work in New York. But um, he should be gone. I'm not going to be surprised if he's back. Now, Jerry Reese is still not gone. Uh, there's still a chance Ben McAdoo won't be gone. Well, for the first time in a long time, I'm not blaming Jerry Reese here. He gave Ben McAdoo all the tools he needed this year. Yeah, he could have gotten him a couple of better players. But honestly, this is on Ben McAdoo, and it's on the players themselves. All the tools are there. There's no excuse why the Giants should be one in nine right now, or not even yeah one in nine right now. So I'm actually going to give Jerry Reese a pass on this one. Yeah, so am I, and that's a rare sentence for me to say. But I'm not giving Ben McAdoo a pass. You started the season 0 and 4 before you had to play the San Diego Char- uh, Los Angeles Chargers at home, a team that was 0 and 4 as well, and that's when everybody went down for you where you lost Brandon Marshall, where you lost Odell Beckham, where you lost every wide receiver known to man on that Giants roster. You still lost the game and started off 0-5, but you lost 0-4 with all the guys there, with your team totally healthy. There's no excuse in my mind to begin that way to begin with. So, no, I, I Well, think I mean, when you is... look at some of the opponents they faced those first four weeks, too, I mean, you're talking about facing the Cowboys, the Eagles, the Lions, and I believe, I forgot who their week four opponent was. Um, but I feel like it was another tough team too. So the schedule didn't help. Still no excuse, but I could see why the Giants would have at least started the season maybe two and two at best. Tampa, Tampa was Tampa. the uh, fourth team, and which is Tampa was a weird team this year. But yeah, but you still lost all four 
Three of them were road games. Two of them are division games. You lost to the Eagles by three. You lost to Tampa by two. Uh, at the first two weeks of the season, you only scored 13 points between going against Dallas and the Detroit Lions. So I, I, there's just not enough for me to believe in, okay, the offense was always there for them because they weren't scoring in the first couple of weeks of the season, and then they were losing games anyway. So, you know, I think this is just a, one of those moves where the Giants, it's a New York team, no reason to fire him when you're 1-9 already in the season. Fire him at the end of the year. And I think that's what you're going to see on that. Uh, the day after Week 17 ends, I think he's one of the first coaches to get fired at the beginning and, and for the Giants to start a whole new plan, game plan. But I'm not surprised they didn't fire him after the 49ers loss, but I will certainly be surprised if they stick with him going into next season. It just makes no sense. I know it's kind of weird to say. It just makes no sense to fire him after this game because it's not going to get better. It's not like the Giants are going to go off and win the next couple of games and, and save their playoff hopes, honestly. So, I mean, just fire him at the end of the year. At and least give him a chance to try and save himself, honestly. And whoever you give the job to going into Week 11, they're not entering a job with success. The team isn't there. The team isn't healthy. The defense is out of it. The offense is just looking to protect Eli Manning for what they can try and do. There, there's just nothing that – no reason to put somebody in a situation where you move a defense coordinator or an offensive coordinator into the starting head coach position. And they just it's a recipe for failure. Might as well just stick with Ben McAdoo and wait it out. Finally, let's end on a funny note. Uh, the winless Browns, they're 0-9 and are yet again the last winless team in the NFL. So let's run through the schedule and see if we can find a win for them. Or are they going to go 0-16? Jads at Bengals, at Chargers, and then home again for the Packers. And then they finish it off with home against the Ravens and then two road games against the Bears and the Steelers. Jose, can the Browns win a football game? Mark my words. Write it down. Upset special. They beat the Green Bay Packers for their only win of the year. That's what I'm rolling with. And I have to say it because I had them originally winning eight games this year. So I do have faith that the Browns are going to at least at least one, and it's going to be against Green Bay. They certainly have a couple of winnable games. The Bears have been very good of late. Uh, oh, they've had a lot of winnable games, but they're the Browns. So, yes. I mean, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, you know, most likely... The Chargers or the Packers, they wound up beating the Chargers last year as their only win in the season. Phillip Rivers might not even has in concussion protocol. I think he's going to play maybe this week, but if it prolongs for a couple of weeks, you could see Phillip Rivers out. Uh, and the Packers, of course, there's going to be no Aaron Rodgers. It'll be one of their last home games. And Cleveland played pretty well against Detroit, so if they can sort of go on a consistency in that span... Maybe they can pick up a win, but certainly if they do, it's going to be, in my mind, against either the Bears, the Packers, or the Chargers. Hopefully the Bear, uh, the Browns win one game. I'm getting tired of seeing 0 and 16 teams or 0 and 14 Browns. It's just, it's not entertaining to watch. It's funny to laugh at, but it's just not entertaining. After a while, it just gets really sad. Yeah. And I think one of the craziest stats is 28 out of the last 38 games that the Browns have played, they have not covered the spread. And this is a team that gets points as high as like 13 at times, and they still can't cover the spread. Uh, and with that, we enter our beer bat segment, uh, where we look back in sports history on 
November 16th when we're recording this podcast. And a few things stand out to me in sports history on today's date. If we go back to 1926, the New York Rangers' first game beating the Montreal Maroons one to nothing. So a little hockey moment for us in there. And although we didn't talk about basketball today, in 1962, Will Chamberlain of the Warriors scores 73 points against the New York Knicks. Uh, he's got a, dab, a Nick jab in there, and so we got one of those. Uh, we talked about the NL MVP uh, race today, but in 1966, Pirates outfielder Roberto Clemente was named NL MVP. And although I don't have a football one, I have a soccer one, or football, depending on where you're from. In 2003, Leon Messier makes his official debut for Barcelona. So, those are our beard back as we look back in sports history on November 16th. And of course, following beard back is our dude and dunce of the week. And last week, the dude of the week went to Rams QB Jared Dolph this week. The Rams will keep the award as well as we're giving it to wide receiver Robert Woods. Eight receptions, 171 yards, two touchdowns. He led the NFL in yards last week at 171 and even put up two touchdowns. It came close between him and Mark Ingram, but Woods getting the notch as our dude of the week. And Jose, always with dude of the week, we have our dunce of the week. And who is our dunce of the week? Our dunce of the week is going to be LeBron James. And yes, King James himself is dunce of the week. Earlier in the week, he made some comments about how the Knicks should have drafted Dennis Smith Jr. Doesn't know how to, how he slipped by them. And although that statement is true, they should have drafted Dennis Smith Jr., LeBron James needs to stay in his lane, worry about his own struggling Cleveland Cavalier team. Mad props to Ennis Cantor for standing up for Frank Nino in that game when they came face-to-face and started joying at each other. LeBron James, again continues to prove sometimes why people some people don't consider him better than Jordan. Yes, the stats are there. Clearly, LeBron James is a superior player when it comes to stats. But honestly, his behavior on the court, not a fan of it. I'm tired of the whining. I'm tired of the crying to the referee. I'm tired of crying for fouls that you're committing, obviously, or for flopping for all the plays that you get called on you. It gets tiring after a while. I was tired of hearing about him trying to take shots at Phil Jackson. You have a beef with Phil Jackson? Settle it with Phil Jackson. Leave the Knicks out of it. Leave the state of New York out of it. We don't want you here in New York. Stay in Cleveland. Go to Miami. Go to L.A. with Lonzo Ball because King James is not the king of New York. No matter how many times you want to tweet it out. Uh, for the first time, picking up a dunce of the week is LeBron James in for Sarasso the Beard. So that's an interesting one. I Normally, we'd think he would make a dude of the week, but he gets dunce of the week instead. Wow, he made dunce before he made dude. That's yes, he did. But I'm sure he'll have some big triple-double games coming up soon and hit due to the week eventually. Once again, you're listening to Saras on the Beard, episode 13, breaking down, of course, the MLB MVP uh, predictions as well as Gentile Stanton, Shoei Otani, and, of course, the NFL as we head into Week 11. Once again, I'm Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And thank you for listening to Sarasso on the Beard, episode 13. Episode 14 coming out next week towards closer to Thanksgiving. And of course, enjoy the holiday.